Hey there, Almost Founder, and welcome back to the most practical podcast for very early stage entrepreneurs. My name is Kurosh Gafari, and just like you, I'm a young founder who wants to build products that people love. Today, we are learning from Rupert Lee Brown. Rupert is probably one of the nicest founders I have ever spoken to, and his track record is insane. He has built and bootstrapped his fintech giant Caxton FX to over a billion dollars in turnover and is out there helping the next generation of founders. Rupert will speak about something that will 100% affect all of us and 110% help you build just a better startup. That is, how to properly treat your very first users. Before we get to that, I'm excited to announce our new micro-communities. Instead of adding you to a huge channel of strangers, we'll ask you to fill out a short form about yourself and match you with 12 to 15 like-minded founders. We're making communities real again. The link to that is in the podcast description. And now let's get to it. As always, share this episode with some of your entrepreneurial friends who have at least one user of their service or product. Get ready to learn today, to use tomorrow. Hi, Rupert. Thank you so much for being here. And you know me, let's get straight to the point. How should you deal with your very first customers? I know that you have a super nice story that explains customer service brilliantly. So in the early days, um, uh, most of our customers were buying or selling properties overseas. And we had one particular client, very organized man. He did everything, um, everything by the book, everything worked perfectly. He made sure the application form was perfect. So when it came to the actual exchange, he sent us his money well in advance. We exchanged the money and then sent it on to the end, uh, the end bank. Uh, so we sent the money and the money didn't arrive. And he was getting closer and closer to his, to his completion. And quite rightly, he was getting quite upset about the whole thing. We tried very hard to find out where the money was. And eventually, the money was basically being sent back to us, which was less than useless. So I phoned him up and I said, Ray, uh, where are you going to be tomorrow morning? And he said, well, I'm here in Carcassonne now and I'll be here tomorrow morning. I said, fine, I will meet you tomorrow with a banker's draft, with an international banker's draft, um, uh, with the funds concerned. Early the next morning, I got on the, the first flight possible and went to Carcassonne Airport and I met him with his money. The reason that I did it was because it, this was the most important thing to him and he was our customer. And all the other, all the, so all the other banks in the chain were denying responsibility. They basically shut down. But from his perspective, he just, he just wanted to buy his plot of land. And it was important to me that I had a satisfied customer. Every customer that I had had to be satisfied. And uh, since then, he's been the most extraordinary advocate of Caxton. Travels the world now, sends me postcards. In fact, he, he, he was in he was in Barbados over Christmas. So what is the business logic behind that, though? Because I know that you want to satisfy the customer, but you have to be able to back it up with some kind of logic that this is helping our company. And how do you make sure that a satisfied customer, especially in the very early days when you might only have one or two users, turns into something that will support your business? So when you're, when you're first starting out, every customer matters. And you have to understand that, if, that long term, you may not make a profit on that customer. But if you, if you give them value and service and you're producing the right product or service for them, then they will come back. And, and they will become a profitable customer. We have customers who are profitable to us and we have customers who are unprofitable to us. As a whole, they make up a cohort of excellent customers. And you have to accept that some customers are not going to be absolute profit centers. 
And neither should they, because they bring other things. They may be one of your biggest advocates. So they may well be bringing in profitable customers just by talking about you, just by saying what a wonderful company you are. I take this democratic approach. Some customers are fantastic to deal with and others are not very pleasant. But that's, that should be fine, so long as they're using your product or service. I and mean, one of the things that I always loved doing was dealing with the customers on the phone because by and large, they would phone up with a problem. And by and large, I knew that they would leave that phone call with that problem resolved. They may have started that phone call with a very negative attitude to us. But part of my pride in what we've built at Caxton is that most people who leave phone calls or interactions with us leave with a positive attitude of what we've done. And I think that's, I think that's a great achievement. It is. And from this story and basically what you've told me about the non-profitable customers turning into profitable ones at another time through different actions, I see two sides to this. So right now, when you are a super, super early stage startup, like almost founders, for example, we often hear from our mentors who are really good at sales and who teach us about sales that we need case studies of people that we have helped pretty much customers where we have provided the value. And this can only happen when we treat them like kings or queens like you have with your customer in France. So how does one go ahead and write a case study about something like this? Because in Caxton's, in this specific story, it must have been pretty hard because you can't write at the very top. We messed up somewhere, but we solved it. I assume that can't be a really great case study, right? But you see, I think that is a great case study because um, you have to work on the basis that things go wrong. Not everything is perfect all the 100% of the time. And keep this a secret to yourselves, but even after 20 years, we make mistakes as a business. The difference is what we do to resolve those mistakes. So on the basis that things go wrong in life, um, it's what you do then to fix that and your approach to, to resolving that problem. So I think, it, I think it would be a really refreshing thing to see case studies saying, I messed up or we messed up but this is what we did to resolve the problem because that's what people remember. Um, um, You know, there are so many examples of, 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 um, of times when, when a a big problem appears, um, everyone says at the time, Oh my God, it's an absolute disaster. But then the final thing is actually what they remember, which is the success. Of course. So let's just imagine a scenario where the client is happy to end. We provide them with everything that we can. We get, we treat them really like the CEOs of the, our own companies. How do you go ahead and actually write a case study? And what do you put in a case study? Because case study might be a really weird word for this because we assume it. we connect it kind of to long pages that we write for universities. What do you put in a case study? Where do you put it out? The bit that I always remember about things is, is stories. So case studies is not, it's not a case study. It should be a story in exactly the same way that I, that I talked about Ray, um, Ray and, and, and uh, flying out to see him. This is stories about people more than anything else. And so setting the scene, explaining what, what was the problem on the assumption that there was a problem and then explaining exactly how the organization or you individually resolved that problem. It needs to be short I think in the world of a world now of over communication, you know, there's so many words that we can read. Everything needs to be short now. It needs to be snappy. It needs to be written like an advertising slogan. Uh, you cut out unnecessary words. No flowery adjectives. Unfortunately, these don't uh, these don't really have the impact that perhaps they used to. 
and yeah, just make it short and sweet and have a picture of a smiley face that goes along, <laughs> goes along with the actual words. So a picture of the customer, what you've done for them, and maybe a quote of them in the end as in like, I would definitely recommend Caxton or I would definitely recommend startup XYZ, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's very, very simple. Just, make, just keep it simple. Um, it doesn't need to be long. It can even be just a couple of sentences. You know, even if it's just a quote, um, a quote from the client themselves, that's a case study. Um, what we saw with the website of Almost Founders Ourselves, that if you put in quotes of people with real faces, real people that people can look up, that creates this trust and no amount of, I don't know, nice designs on your website are going to create that trust that you can get from a real person. Um, which brings me to my follow-up. A case study is something that the business does to show other people that you have helped the client and that you can do the same for this new user, this new customer. But this thing of the client who might not be profitable in the case of Ray, but then turning profitable through the word of mouth. How do you initiate that for a consumer? What I found in Almost Founders is that you can't expect from anyone to go out there and spread the word about you on their own. You have to initiate that somehow as a business. So how do you do it? How we do it now and how we did it then is different. So we've got a, we have a different media landscape now. Facebook barely existed when we started Caxton. The internet was, uh, we'd been through a cycle with the internet, but it was nowhere near um, uh, as, as crowded a marketplace. So the, the method of communication is different, but the principle is the same, which starts with reputation and your case study and the look and feel of the business uh, and what the business has done for you as an individual. So back then, we would start with the media, getting ourselves quoted in magazines and newspapers And the newspapers were a big driver for us in terms of stories, getting those case studies out there. So the principle of getting that customer to talk about us was about how we treated them in the first place, the value that we created, and then, as you say, asking them. So the last, last 10 years has been very interesting, where particularly um, uh, tech-based businesses have started up in the payment sector, and they started incentivizing customers to invite their friends to join up. So the classic one is, you know, introduce a friend and make 10 quid. We'd, we'd, we'd never really wanted to go down that road. So early on in the organizations, so early on in our story, um, we, we looked at incentivizing our customers to get, their, to get their friends and relations to join. And we, we talked to them and we said, you know, if we gave you, if we gave you a bottle of champagne for every person that you, that you introduced, would you, would you introduce them? And the answer came back, well, not really. No, we, we introduce you because we like you, because we like what you're doing. And because you talk to us as, a, as, you know, as human beings. So from a practical perspective now, how you actually get that person to recommend your service, first of all, you have to have a good service or a good product. The second thing is that you need to ask them. You say, you know, would you mind? But I think offering them an incentive, I think that changes the relationship altogether. I think that um, I think paying people to to invite friends, it it skews their behaviour, it skews their friends' behaviour, because they because their friend understands that they're getting a tenner, and sometimes and, and then of course you've got this whole thing where you know share a tenner between you or share twenty quid between you, but once that tenner has been spent, then the delight of reusing a company just disappears. And I think this is the thing to remember is that, you know, if you want to build a long-term business rather than a short-term one, you've got to understand the long-term motivations of your customers, not the short-term ones. Um, 
and that is all about um, understanding their motivation for using you in the first place. And that has to be because of the integrity of what you're offering and a delight in serving those customers. Okay. So what I wanted to then get to, I think we made a full circle now where we are speaking right now to early stage founders, people who are building their first products or services. And the truth is that the first product that you're going to put out there is not going to be good. It's not going to be great. So by using this CEO treatment, what you have done, flying out there, handing over the check, you as the founder become part of this product or service and you add to what your actual physical product or service is lacking, meaning that you create this human connection to someone that even though you might have not not done something 100% successfully, that person will remember your smile. They will know all of the time you put into them to really take care, for them, take care of them. And that's going to get them to speak about everyone else, uh, speak about your product to everyone else in the end. Um, would you agree with that? And also uh, the final question, if you were to do it again today in the sense of customer feedback outreach, would you change anything or how would you do it? Imagine you started a startup tomorrow. Imagine you're 21 starting a startup. How would you have done it? Um, so first of all, yes, I agree with your analysis there. Um, I genuinely don't know how I would do it again today. If I'm, if I'm honest, I look back and think it's extraordinary that we've got to where we are because by rights, you know, the number of mistakes that we've made, um, all of the pitfalls, all of the uh, all of the rodeo ride that we've had, you know, it's it, it is slightly extraordinary that that the business has succeeded. And I think it's the same for for virtually every business. If if every if every founder was truly honest with them, you know, they'll look back and say, well, that's that was really extraordinary. So starting again, the first thing you need to understand that you need to put into something is passion and drive, because that's what people buy. Whether or not you need investment and you need uh, you need backers, whether or not you need uh, large numbers of customers or small numbers of customers, you need to demonstrate that actually you believe wholeheartedly in what you're doing because that's the thing that really interests people. That's the thing that really captures people. When I, when I first started thinking about it, I had grand plans. You know, I needed to raise a couple of million. But the reality was that I started it with 25 grand because I absolutely believed that I could do it and that there was a place for Caxton in the market. And as it happens... I didn't need more than 25 grand. What I wanted, what I needed was, was enough money uh, in the bank to support the, uh, the, the credit lines that I needed to, to, to buy currency. I needed a, an office, but that could have been a bedroom. Um, and I needed a telephone. And I used, I had one advert on Google. And that advert, back in the day, creates a telephone call from a potential client. He then turned into a client. That was my first profitable deal that I did. The current trend is to raise money um, as a, uh, for a startup. You believe that you absolutely need to raise money. You need to go through lots and lots and lots of different rounds as you grow. If you can do without that, then that is the best thing, I would say. I would say that as a founder, you need to be concentrating on your customers, not on raising money. Because after all, the business should be there for your customers, not for the investors. In an environment of low interest rates, investors need to put money into things, into things that create a return. And at the moment, that is very much small businesses or growing businesses or startups or whatever. And it's very tempting to take that money. But I'm not convinced by this model long term, partly because the founders need to, need to be able to run the business how they believe it should be run. And sometimes you have to, you have to accept that your customers are going to be unprofitable. 
but um, but the investors might actually have a different point of view. And investors are very good at investing, but they're not necessarily very good at running businesses. And also they won't have the passion to make that, that business grow. It, investment does have its place, but I think that if you, can, if you can start a business with nothing or with your own funds, that is by far the best thing. I know that this might sound a bit obvious, but it gets easy to lose track of how your customer is doing, even when you're growing just a little bit. So always make sure that they're happy and treat every new customer like they're the very first. Thank you so much for this, Rupert. And in just 16 minutes, you have learned about the CEO treatment and its wonders. There's no way around it. The people that trust you in the very beginning are special. So let them know. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your founder friends to remind them about the CEO treatment. And as always, my name is Kurosh Kafari, and just like you, I'm an almost founder. <laughs>